This is desperation, and desperation breeds sacrifice. Matt Serafini, Rights of Extinction. Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast dedicated to the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Devin. And today the locals are acting rather odd, and we don't quite know why when we talk about folk horror. This episode of Books in the Freezer is brought to you by Audible. This podcast wouldn't be possible without audiobooks. So if you want some spooky stories told by some familiar voices, try Stephen King's Pet Cemetery, read by Dexter's Michael C. Hall, or The Dead Zone, read by James Franco, or podcast favorite Joe Hill's Nosferatu, read by Kate Mulgrew. For a free audiobook and 30-day trial, go to audibletrial.com slash books in the freezer. Happy listening. I am excited for this episode because I absolutely love folklore. It is, I think, the backbone of pretty much every other genre of horror, and it's going to be great. Like, just I have I have a lot of ideas of books to talk about that incorporate folklore into into horror. It's, it's going to be a good episode, I think. Uh, I hate to break it to you, <laughs> but I think. Uh... Folk horror is a little different from folklore. Wait, what? 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 What do you mean? So there, there is an element of folklore in folk horror, but folk horror is a little more specific. Uh, I actually do have a definition here from one of the books I'm going to be recommending later in the episode. It had a really good introduction, and it actually said, "What is folk horror?" And I'll tell you right now. Okay. At its heart, this highly subjective subgenre of horror is weird fiction firmly rooted in European pagan tradition with superstition, folklore, belief, and modernity clashing in ill-omened and menacing ways. Oh, um, okay. I meant that change a few picks. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, yeah, I got this. Okay, let's go. Are we going to be okay? Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. We're fine. We are fine. So so when you say folk horror, you're you're referring to like the specific genre of, you know, the the outsider coming to the small town and everything it seems kind of normal but not quite and then you have like these weird traditions or superstitions that kind of clash with with the beliefs of the main main character. Um, you kind of get these little like culty vibes kind of thing from it. Generally rooted, as you said, in, in like paganism or or maybe an alternative, you know, faith or or religion of sorts. Essentially, it is. It does fall into that kind of small town horror. But like small town horror, like sometimes we get the perspective of the outsider coming into this closed off community, and sometimes we get to look at it from someone who lives in that community and to look through their eyes and how everything you know, all of these strange things are completely normal to them. So those are kind of like the two setups. But yeah, it's this odd community with <laughs> some pagan traditions that maybe get violent. Yeah, that sounds about right. Think the Wicker Man. If you do look up folk horror, 
that is the main example you're going to get. Most most roads will lead you to the Wicker Man as like the the shining beacon of what they mean when they say folk horror. You're of course referring to the Nicolas Cage masterpiece, right? Uh, so Books in the Freezer will be looking for a new co-host. Um, send your emails to <laughs> booksinthefreezer at gmail.com. Um, this is my two weeks and have a nice life. Not the beast! God, that is so traumatizing. <laughs> they're in my eyes! <laughs> and they're like nowhere near his eyes. <laughs> oh god. Uh, the unintentional comedy that is the Wicker Man remake. Anyway. <laughs> Christopher Lee was in the original how could they destroy such a masterpiece with Nicolas Cage I'll never know (sighs) but yes we are referring to that film and its remake with stories like that there are some as we mentioned earlier a lot of these stories have a lot of similarities in their setups like you know we usually are dealing with some type of religious practice yeah usually paganism but like we've said not necessarily always some kind of a devotion to dark magic or the devil himself i was gonna say there there probably um there's gonna be a little bit of overlap sometimes with some titles uh referring to the satanic panic you have people entering a town that's like under the sway of the over the top kind of you know satanistic cults and stuff like that that would kind of blur the line between i say folk and I noticed in a lot of the stuff that I read, most of the rituals were revolving around agriculture. Yeah. Just going back to its, you know, real old roots. Well, yeah, that that will bring us back to The Wicker Man, the the premise of it. And this is kind of a spoiler. I'm like, yeah, spoilers for The Wicker Man. Sorry, guys. <laughs> well, I mean, it is a 50-year-old movie now. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that's, that's essentially the plot of The Wicker Man is this is a, a ritual, a sacrifice that's done to try and help with uh, with a failing harvest, with a failing crop season. So this is why they bring Nicholas Kit, I mean Edward Woodward, <laughs> to the island in the first place to to do this. It's it's concerning their crops, concerning their livelihood, what they believe to to help them with their with their agriculture. And I think it's interesting to look at where the horror is coming from in a lot of these books. Uh, some of them are you know, the rituals themselves. And it's interesting to see in some of these books whether we get to see any evidence of the supernatural because a lot of the times the horror is just how far people are willing to go, you know, for their beliefs. Right, the sheer fanaticism that some people will go to and what they will justify to themselves by using those beliefs to do it. Because we're dealing with the horror genre, sometimes it's just a collection of people with these beliefs that are carrying them out to a very extreme degree. And then there are other times you'll actually have legit supernatural elements in play that is orchestrating these things. So you end up getting a nice, a nice diverse kind of presentation. It's not all just, oh, this is a crazy town of people that think really weird and they do horrific things. Sometimes there is actually a supernatural entity or force behind everything happening. Or you see this deity that they worship. This might be a bit of a stretch, but in a way you could look at the town of Derry like that in it because the adults in that town are under the sway of, of the creature, of the entity, it. And of course, just the topic of folk horror in general is kind of in the zeitgeist now because of Midsummer. Now that is a movie I have yet to partake in viewing so um steph how how what did you think about it i enjoyed it i will say personally not as much as hereditary but 
It was a movie you saw. It was fun while you were watching, and they never mm-hmm. thought about it again. I mean, I've thought about it since then. Oh, so okay. it had it had some uh, some good gruesome moments. I think the funnest part was going to see it with my sister, who does not watch a lot of horror movies, and she is very like I'm very calm, and she's very expressive. <laughs> okay. So in the theater, it was a lot. Of, you know, there's a few scenes of just gore. And Ari Aster does a good job of like building up the tension. I will say, like when the Americans get there to this little town in Sweden, there's a, an act of violence that happens right away, and all of these formalities and not necessarily rituals, but like practices leading up to it, like these special dinners and all this stuff is happening. And my sister leans over and she's like, "What's going to happen?" And I feel like I was like, "Obviously, this." And she was like, no. <laughs> and then it happened and she screamed. <laughs> See, that is primarily my favorite thing about horror movies, horror television shows, horror in general, is that even the worst, cheesiest, schlockiest kind of story you can imagine can still be enjoyed with the right people. The, the experience of it is enough to uh, come up with it. So, I mean, yeah, that's that sounds awesome. I, I, I like having friends that will watch horror movies but don't necessarily enjoy them. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds horrible on my part. Oh, man. My sister was so nervous that when the, the credits don't roll, it has like a, a very long and dark cold opening. And when the credits rolled, my sister, who is a loud whisperer, She's like, I very much regret you talking me into this. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a good evening. Yeah. Full core itself has only been like a term, like the term full core describing this type of horror has only been around for 10, 15 ish years, I believe. I do have a source that cites that um, one of the first mentions of it was back in 2004, and I may be wrong on that, so don't necessarily quote me on the year. But Pierce Haggard, the author of the story Blood on Satan's Claw, coined the term early. So the term itself is, is relatively new, it's only been around in the 2000s, so the last 15, 20 years tops. Um, but the genre that is quite old. Um, just to talk about some movies you probably have heard of, Children of the Corn. Children of the Corn hands down fits the description of Full Core to a T. Also, a movie I'm going to stick up for. I enjoy Children of the Corn. You enjoy Children of the Corn? Yes, I did. Hmm. I know you've disparaged it in past episodes, but I'm just here to say I'm, I like it. I'm not... Ne- okay, this may contradict something that I may or may not have said. I'm okay with Children of the Corn, period. Stop. As in no more movies. Stop there. Just no more. No no Children of the Corn 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 75. Children of the Corn 1, the original movie. I'm okay with it. It's fine. It's I haven't seen it in a long time, though, so I might need to rewatch it. But I'm I'm okay with it. But that's the extent of where I'm going to go with that. Yeah. I mean, I don't delve too far into franchises. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm only talking about the first one. Okay. So, okay. I, I, can, I can concede that. If I have... Um, slandered the corn uh, prior. I apologize, but but anything else. So and and the Wicker Man that we mentioned already that came out in uh, 1973. 
And 2006. 1973, exactly. Yeah, the Wicker Man just fits it. I mean, we mentioned this earlier. It just fits it so perfectly. Like a outsider comes to this closed off society that has these strange old fashioned beliefs and things don't go well for that outsider. Yep. And that's what I mean. Like, that's why every single response to the term folklore you'll find online will mention at least the Wicker Man or use it as its primary example. We also have the Vavitch. <laughs> the Vavitch. Oh, God. That's how it says it on the cover of the movie. So. Yeah. Double Vs. Because it's like the old the old English spelling. Well, like the subtitle for it is literally a tale of New England folk horror. The Blair Witch and the Witch are actually really similar in what they focus on because you're focusing on this group of people. I mean, in The Witch, one of them is, you know, exiled from their community and they go to this, they find this clearing and this is where they decide to, you know, build their home and settle down but they are unwanted there. And in The Blair Witch, you're following this group of people making this documentary, doing research. And in both cases, you do know that it it is pagan in nature, even though, yeah, you, you don't get to necessarily see this community. You don't necessarily get to... There's not a lot of screen time dedicated for the witch or the witches. Right. No, that's the thing. Like, when with the Blair Witch, you do see it in the sense of the first what thirty minutes or so of the film, where they're interviewing people and you, just the people, the way they're talking about the tradition, the Blair Witch, the legend, all this stuff, you can see the influence it has over the people in the town. All the while, it doesn't necessarily play a huge role in the events that unfold because it that's more about the main characters and their direct confrontation with this force. In the, in the woods, but it's, it's still you still have these clashing ideals of um, the film students Heather, Josh, and I can't remember the third one meeting the old again the old tradition the old um, authority I guess of of the witch and being on, in her territory. Oh, speaking of the Blair Witch Project, did you buy into the marketing for that? No. I, even at that age, at the ripe, senile old age of 15 years old, I still felt like I had the sense of, if this really was footage of actual people that disappeared, they wouldn't have released it to theaters. It would be locked in evidence somewhere, and there would be manhunts, and the, I think, I heard somebody try and explain it to me that... Um, oh yeah, the, they release it to theaters so a lot of people will see it so then they can help them find the missing filmmakers. And that just never held much weight with me. Well, let me tell you what. When eight-year-old Stephanie saw this movie in theaters with her parents, she 100% believed it and was horrified. A lot of people did. A lot of people bought into that. Like, And, and I, I want to give them props for it. That was genius marketing on their part. Oh, yeah, especially for the time. And at this time, I'll probably like to just mention that what we're talking about for those younger listeners, when the Blair Witch Project came out, found footage, there was found footage films that came out earlier than this, but this was like the big one that really took off. And the marketing for this film was simply short trailers, and it just says, these people went missing in the woods, this... Never, they were never heard from again. This is the footage we found. So everything about this thing was really mysterious. Of who made the film, 
um, what what is really what is the Blair Witch? What is what is going on in here? And it was really hyped up that this really was footage that was found. Hence the whole found footage kind of uh, moniker. And yeah, there was lots of people going and saying this was the scariest movie of all time because a lot of people went believing it to be true, including young Stephanie here. It also doesn't help my gullibility in that I didn't see it when I first came to theaters. Our theater back home, if a movie came out this week, we might get it a month from now or two months from now. So it was a it was a fair length of time before I could actually go to a theater and see it. And by then, they were, I think, on like a like a Tonight Show or something. Like they made a public appearance. Oh, so it was <laughs> so, the whole illusion was ruined. Pretty much. But I still I still loved horror at that age, and I still went into it to be like, okay, I'm just going to pretend this is real. I tried doing that with all of them. Like you have to immerse yourself in a horror story, whether it's a novel, a movie, whatever to really get the full power of it. And Blair Witch was really immersive. I'll give it that. I can't deny that. And of course, as we mentioned earlier, the movie Midsummer that came out this year, 2019, the second film by Ari Aster, who did Hereditary, and that follows a group of Americans who go to a small town in Sweden with their friend for a kind of a festival. And uh, things go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> poorly bad and I, I saw a tweet about this and I was like yeah so this has uh, William Jackson Harper who plays Cheaty on The Good Place and he's just a character that's been put in like a weirdly specific typecast of like man who is too obsessed with his thesis <laughs> to like a dangerous point <laughs> okay there. I was just like, what a weirdly specific like type to be. Well, if he plays it well, he plays it well. Because yeah. I was like, you're just kind of playing cheaty, but okay. The last thing I am going to mention that needs to be mentioned uh, about this before we go into our recommendations is what I believe to be probably some of the oldest examples of folk horror I could find. And that is the works of H.P. Lovecraft. Because Honestly, just about everything that guy has written could be classified as folk horror. You look at Shadow Over Innsmouth. You look at the Dunwich Horror. It is all about these investigators. They're coming in with these entire communities that are based around these ancient, ancient traditions and working towards these these rituals and, and um, kind of undergoing these transformations. And there, there's so much to the cosmic horror of Lovecraft that almost entirely fits within folk horror but you know we're talking about 80 years before folk horror was a term um so although i'm not going to be recommending as part of my like my pick for this week um one of those works i i would be remiss not to mention it if you want to get some really old 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 school folk horror um shadow over innsmouth especially and, and the dunwich horror would be good places to take a look if you're into especially if you're into lovecraftian horror you ready to talk about some books i am ready to talk about some books well the first book i'm going to recommend is one i've recommended before but it's a repeat only because when you look for folk horror this is one of the 
big classic ones in the genre. And it is Harvest Home by Thomas Tryon. This follows a man named Ned and his family. They're looking for a change of pace. They live in the city. And so they move into this idyllic and rural town named Cornwall Coombe that really seems too good to be true. The houses are all beautiful. You know, like the town square is very quaint. Everyone seems very nice. Uh, But of course, we are dealing with a small town with a secret. And that secret is within the folk horror genre. I don't want to get too far into like what it is necessarily. But yeah, outsider moving into this uh, town, things might not go so well for him in his attempts to fit in with this town, but also figure out why everyone has been acting so weird. So what I love about this book is that It spends, like I would say, the first half of the book is, you know, setting the scene and getting to know this place and its characters. And I remember reading it. This was the first horror novel that I had read in a long time. Like this was one of the first books that kind of got me into horror. So I felt going into this and maybe I was naive, but I was also disarmed, I guess, the first half of this book, just learning about this like cute little town. And I'm like... This is a cute little town. I don't know what's possibly wrong with these people. Everyone seems so nice. Guys, I would do great in a horror movie. (laughs) (laughs) Of course. Yeah, I'm like, I don't know what is wrong. Everyone seems so nice. Everything seems... I was uh, under the spell of Cornwall Coombe, much like Ned and his family. Um, But then... Yeah, the second half of the book kicks in and things start to get dark. And what I loved this about and what I loved about this book is that it had a great ending because I think, you know, closer to like the 75% mark, I'm like, I think I have an inkling of like what's going on here. And even with that, that ending is still pretty powerful, even if you can kind of figure out what's going on. It just sticks the landing so well, in my opinion. Even if you like me, kind of can figure out where this is going. And with it being in this episode, I mean, I guess you can also kind of like guess what's going on. Uh, But even knowing all that, I thought it was still very well done. Uh, As for where I would rate this, I would put this in the fridge. Uh, Like I said, it does take a while for things to happen. But when they do, you're invested and it's worth it. And it, it does get fairly dark so i would say fridge so that was harvest home by thomas tryon this is going to lead me to my pick my pick is actually a i'm not sure if the technical term is a short story or a novelette it's kind of somewhere in between the two i think it's more of a novelette but it is called the night whiskey by jeffrey ford um you can find that in his short story collection called the drowned life um, now, I can't give a whole lot of the synopsis of it because, as we talk about with short story collections, they're so short it's kind of difficult not to give stuff away. However, I will say this is quite an enjoyable read. Um, it takes place in, as you guessed, a small, remote community, very isolated from any other larger center. He makes a special point early on to to establish the fact that nobody... There's nobody in this town that isn't just passing by on the way to somewhere else. It's one of those places. The Night Whiskey itself is a brew that is derived from what they call death berries. These death berries, as far as the narrator is aware, 
only grows from the carcasses of dead animals. And what happens is they harvest these berries and they, eating them by themselves will make you violently ill. But fermented in this secret way that only like a handful of people know and it's been passed down for generation to generation, um, it can be fermented into this really strong and the best tasting whiskey you'll ever have. Um, this story takes place on what's called the Drunk Harvest, in which there's this um, lotto kind of thing where a number of the community um, are are drawn in like a lottery kind of thing to taste some of the night whiskey. The whiskey makes people behave quite strangely. This takes place on an event in the town called the Drunk Harvest. It fits all of the check boxes that we've established that will fit into the folk horror genre. And it's kind of eerie. Uh, <laughs> like I said, I wish I could say more, but where it is such a short story, I really... I'm already feeling like I kind of gave away a little too much as it is. So I am going to have to leave it at that. But I will say that this, I haven't read the rest of the short story collection. I, I, I bought the collection strictly for this story because it was recommended as a folk horror story. Um, I enjoyed it enough. I, I'm, the next thing I'm going to be doing right now when I finish recording this is read the rest of the stories in the collection. I give it a high recommendation, even though I can't give you much info about it. In terms of temperature rating, I am struggling to not put it in the fridge, but I'm going to come down. Yeah, yeah, it is it is a room temperature, but it does have fridge moments. And like I said, if full core itself, like this kind of ambiance is uh, something you're really into, then it could be a fridge story. Final answer, it's a, it's a cold room temperature. So that was uh, the night whiskey by Jeffrey Ford from the collection The Drowned Life. Well, my next pick is Rites of Extinction by Matt Serafini. And this follows a woman named Rebecca Daniels. She fits into one of my favorite fiction cliches, which is an alcoholic private detective who has gone through some stuff. She is a PI. She is on her way to Bright Fork to apprehend the man who killed her daughter. This is... Not an ordinary manhunt, and the town of Bright Fork is not an ordinary town. But there's a lot of strange things about this case. Uh, The man she is looking for was her daughter's ex-boyfriend, and her daughter was brutally murdered by this guy. So she is on the way to this town uh, where he was seen last. Just the stuff that she finds when she gets to this town and she sees like the hotel room where he was last seen is it's in complete disarray. There's some symbols on the wall and things get really dark and off but there's a lot of things that Rebecca is struggling with yes being an alcoholic but also the fact that she's been having these visions she's been struggling with separating reality from these visions and she can't look into mirrors if she looks into mirrors she sees things that aren't there so there's just a lot of stuff going on at once all coming together basically in this small town 
Um, this is a novella. Um, it's available on Kindle Unlimited. I don't want to give away too much. This is like that kind of short story problem where I'm like, this is the setup. Things get dark. That's kind of all I'm going to say. <laughs> I mean, this is in the folk horror episode. So it gets dark. It gets gruesome. Um, it does get what I would say sexually explicit at times. So reader beware. Um, so I think that's just something you should know going in. And as far as rating... I would put this in the fridge. This was a short novel and I could not put this down. Um, and it had some genuinely like frightening moments and imagery when it, it got to the end and everything coming together. I thought just a lot of the, again, I can't, I have to like talk around it. A lot of the stuff at the end <laughs> was gruesome. So that is Rites of Extinction by Matt Serafini. That's going to bring me to my next pick. I don't have one. One thing I will point you guys towards actually is something I found on Audible and that is the Audible original audio drama for Blood on Satan's Claw. Uh, This is an audio drama that was done exclusively for Audible and it is, it's a drama based upon the 1971 horror film of the same name, um, which like I mentioned earlier alluded to is this is the one that where the the term folk horror originally got coined um i listened to the audio drama in preparation for this episode thinking it was an audiobook and i actually really enjoyed it it's takes place in 17th century england it um again it's going to check all those folk horror boxes um it's about two and a half hours long it's definitely worth a listen um however in lieu of that Um, We do have another pick uh, that I am going to proxy to someone else. Uh, We have a special pick that's going to take the place of my second one this week. And it's probably going to come from a voice that is very familiar to you guys. So without further ado, here it is. Hi, it's me, Rachel, popping in for a quick recommendation because honestly, I couldn't stay away from the podcast. I wasn't actually familiar with the subgenre of folk horror before this episode, so I'm really happy that Stephanie and Devin decided to cover it. However, even though I didn't know what folk horror meant, that doesn't mean that I wasn't unknowingly reading it. So today, I want to recommend a book called The Last Harvest by Kim Liggett. If you're not familiar, this is a young adult horror novel about a teenage boy named Clay who, a year ago, walked into his family's barn to find his father laying on the ground, bleeding out. Before he died, his father mysteriously whispered to his son, I plead the blood. Now, a year later, Clay has taken over his role as man of the house and is responsible for harvesting the crops before the frost comes in. When he's plowing the fields, he accidentally runs over a golden calf. However, later he is not certain if that actually happened or if he imagined it. He worries that he is becoming like his father because you find out that his father was possibly going crazy before he died. He was rumored to either be on drugs or possibly schizophrenic. And because of that, his son Clay now worries that he is also going crazy. The story begins to transpire as his friends begin to get killed off by some mysterious entity or person and the story goes from there. Now, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but I can tell you that this story fits into the folk horror genre because so much of the book deals with things like local legends, secret societies that are passed down from one generation to the next, and cult rituals that are intended to bring in a good harvest. 
I've got to say that this book has amazing atmosphere. And that was one of the things I loved so much about it. It's very much a great book to read during the fall months because it is set, of course, around harvest. And also the main character, Clay, is a former football player. So that works into the plot. And it just gave me all the autumn feels. So definitely something that would be great to read during October. And I would say that this book was quite creepy because of that atmosphere. I found that I'm someone who loves cult horror, and there's definitely an aspect to that in this one. Now, I do want to stress that this is a young adult book, and with that comes a lot of the familiar tropes, including the obligatory love interest. You know me, personally, I don't really need romance in my horror books, but regardless of that, there was still plenty of creepy cult stuff to keep me interested. Needless to say, I do recommend this book. In terms of rating, I would put this one in the fridge because there are some fairly gruesome scenes in it, particularly for those that are sensitive to harmed animals. I have definitely found that young adult books can be a lot creepier than I sometimes give them credit to be. Even if they're targeted for a younger audience, it doesn't mean that the author doesn't go to some dark and disturbing places. And I really enjoyed this one. All that being said, I'm going to pass the conversation back to Stephanie and Devin and let them continue on with the episode. Thank you for that, Rachel. We miss you, Rachel. So my final pick is an anthology just titled The Fiends in the Furrows, an anthology of folk horror. This is edited by David T. Neal and Christine M. Scott, and I believe this came out last year. I'm going to go into that short story problem where I can't really get into too much detail about what the short stories are necessarily about. I will let you know my favorites and kind of give you a basic premise. Uh, so like a few of my favorites. The first one that I really loved was called The Fruit. This was by Lindsay King Miller. And this is about a community that's tasked with picking fruit with some strict rules. Okay. Uh, the second one is titled The First Order of the Whaleyville's Divine Basilisk Handlers by Eric J. We had this problem when we mentioned his short story collection is that I don't know how to say that last name. Guinard? Uh, yes. G-U-I-G-N-A-R-D. And this story, I will just say, pays tribute to the snake handling side of folk horror and, you know, rituals and religion. Um, it kind of pays tribute to like that a little bit. And finally, another one I really loved was called The Way of the Mother by Stephanie Ellis. I do not just love this because it was written by Stephanie. It is a good story. It helps though. Yeah. I mean, I do love Lady Gaga and Stevie Nicks. Weirdly, I'm the only one that hasn't been on American Horror Story out of that. Yet. <laughs> Still waiting. And that one essentially just deals with some rituals. Again, I don't want to say too much. Uh, but what I loved about these is that we mentioned that folk horror seems to be like very specific like these very specific things need to be present for it to be considered folk horror and it was just really nice to see a lot of variety in these stories so you know in some of these stories you do have outsider coming into this weird town um, a lot of times you do have point of view from someone who's lived in this town and this is absolutely normal for them and you're just seeing all of these horrific things unfold with a more of a, a casual tone and you know a good balance between you know supernatural things showing up and sometimes people just being violent for the sake of religious zeal uh, so I thought it was just a very good anthology if you especially if you are interested in folk horror and if you are interested in folk horror, 
why can't I say that? If you are interested in folk horror in any way, I would say this is a great one to pick up to dip your toe into that. This was nominated for a Bram Stoker Award in the anthology category last year. And yeah, I definitely recommend it. That is The Fiends in the Furrows, an anthology of folk horror. Cool. Sounds good. It's always good to have uh, diversity within these uh, sub-genres, especially one so, like you said, so specific. So specific and yet very, very difficult to define. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, sounds good. It is. It's like a feel. Like It feels like a folk horror. You want me to tell you what folk horror is? Okay, here's like 15 examples of what it is, but don't ask me to literally define it because I can't do it. <laughs> Are you ready for some chilling obsessions? Yes, I am absolutely ready for some chilling obsessions. So I watched a movie on Shudder, and that was Last Shift. It's a 2014 horror movie. I had seen this one around, like it was on Netflix for a bit, and I'm glad I finally watched it. This was legitimately creepy. So it follows a a woman. She has one job, and that job is that. We follow her as she takes the last shift at a police station before it's permanently closed, which, you know, sounds pretty cut and dry. Like it's basically just, you know, going to be walking around this police station. It should be like a pretty uneventful night. But of course, we are watching a horror movie. So we know it's not going to be an uneventful night. She is led to believe that the station may be haunted because uh, there were some horrible things that happened, including some Manson-esque murders a long time ago from a local cult. There's some horror movies I can watch and can be completely relaxed. And this one, I was genuinely like uneasy. <laughs> Like, there was tension throughout the movie. I'm like, oh, I don't like this. <laughs> Definitely would have done that. Don't open that door. Nope, don't go in there. <laughs> like, by myself. I just thought this movie did a really good job of setting the mood. It had a good use of jump scares. They weren't cheesy or unnecessary. I thought they were they were very well done. I thought it had a great twists and just really great storytelling. I would absolutely recommend it if you haven't checked it out yet. That is The Last Shift. That is on Shudder. Yeah, so getting back on the Shudder train. Uh, glad to see it. Sounds like a good obsession, Steph. We still didn't get that sponsorship yet, but we're working on it. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure Shudder listens to this podcast and they're just considering it. They, they have to be. They're going over the paperwork right now. My chilling obsession this week is a game called Absolof End of Gods. And that is A-P-S-U-L-O-V. Um, this is probably one of the most interesting yet strangest games that I have played so far this year. Um, it just came out. Uh, it's a pretty budget title. It's from a uh, small indie uh, developer called Angry Demon Studio. You wake up not quite knowing where you are. It's very sci-fi, very visceral horror. Um, and it's... It dubs itself a Viking horror story. So it deals a lot with Norse mythology. Um, they, The place where you are located, they kind of hint that it is a Yggdrasil, the world tree. Um, you get shifted to these other places. They actually call them Niflheim, uh, Jotunheim. Um, all these things you find, there's 
mentions of Odin and Thor and Loki and all these, again, Norse, Viking kind of mythology. In terms of gameplay, it's a lot like Dead Space. It has this mechanic where cybernetic kind of upgrades help you interact with some technology on the place so it's very very sci-fi aesthetic but the antagonists the creatures again all of it based on on this weird nordic folklore uh basis are especially for such a small developer so i'm totally giving my uh, seal of recommendation for this one if you are one of the people listening to the podcast that are also a gamer like myself um this is definitely one that you might want to give a chance um they're a very passionate developer and you can see the care put into taking what's kind of well-known uh mythology and putting it into this very claustrophobic very unsettling setting i guess i played through this from beginning to end on stream and it was again like i said one of my favorite horror games that i've played in recent memory so i can't recommend it enough actually very well done. That was Absaloth, End of Gods. Some announcements. We will be moving the Patreon live show for our book club for the Switch House to the first Sunday in September because I will be traveling the last week of August. So yeah, it'll still be Sunday. It'll still be 7.30 Eastern Standard Time, uh, but I think it'll be... It will be the first of September, yeah. Okay, yeah. So that will be when we will... Uh, meet and discuss the switch house by tim meyer and keep a lookout on our instagram and twitter for our september pick which will be Devin's pick yes that will be announced shortly if it's not already on the site yeah i'm like i forget that we record <laughs> a little before so don't yeah. ruin the illusion steph and since i will be traveling we decided to do a q a episode for our next episode um we did this I did this with Rachel. We haven't done this with Devin. So if you have any questions for either of us, if you have anything you want to ask Devin or ask us, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be about the podcast or about books. Yeah. This is this is the books in the freezers version of a Reddit ask me anything. Literally ask us anything you want, whether it's our opinion on something, whether it's something about us. Um, Whether you want to figure out Devin's security questions. Exactly. <laughs> I am a man of mystery. <laughs> um, I Like I said, I do talk a lot of gaming. I know we have people that, that game and listen to the podcast. Any questions around those? Um, music, movies, books. Teen soaps of the 2000s. You know, like we're here. <laughs> Just... No office questions, just saying. Um, I will accept all office <laughs> questions, parks and recreation, arrested development, Gilmore Girls, like bring uh. it all. <laughs> so yeah, and we'll have that up for you guys in a normal time slot. Uh, that'll be on the 3rd of September. It'll be going live. So make sure you guys get your questions in before this coming Friday um, because we will need to record this over that weekend in order to get it to you on time. And if by chance your question is not answered, uh, rest assured we will hold on to all of them and perhaps be able to use them for a future episode. And we're still working on that Stephen King episode for October. You know what we need? Your voice messages with your favorite Stephen King book and why you enjoy it. Uh, we are going to be doing a countdown and that countdown is based off of your feedback. So if you want to put in a vote for your favorite Stephen King book so it can rank higher, you got to let us know what it is. 
And that can be done through email at booksandfreezer at gmail.com. We do have a thread going on in the Goodreads group right now that you can type out your answer and we'll read it on the episode. But yeah, if you want to submit your a voice message, like if you have an iPhone, you can just do the use the voice memo recorder. If you have a smartphone, it should be pretty easy to to do that to just record yourself and send us that voice clip like we said email it to us keep it to around 40 seconds on social media i will have some posts up if you look if you want to comment with your favorite stephen king book to be used as a vote okay so yeah so you can go to our twitter there'll be a thread there you can comment on so let your voices be heard listeners literally Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod or on Instagram at Books in the Freezer. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash books in the freezer. You can send us an email at books in the freezer at gmail.com. Show notes for this episode and all previous episodes are at booksinthefreezer.com. And we are on Patreon as Books in the Freezer. If you would like to support us financially, it is not required. Uh, Books in the Freezer is always going to be free. There's just some extra goodies if you would like to help us out and support us. Uh, We have a few levels. We have like a $1 level. Uh, That's the final girl level. And for that, you get episodes early. You get them on Sunday instead of Tuesday. And you get to know what the next episode is going to be before we release it. We have a $3 level. That's the axe-wielding maniac level. And for that, you get to participate in the Books in the Freezer live shows. The You get to participate in the book club live shows. You also get access to the Voxer chat for Patreon supporters. Um, And of course, you still get everything from the $1 level. And the $5 level is the Malevolent Spirit level. And for that level, you do get uh, bonus episodes. You get to vote on book club books. And often when we ask for feedback, Um, that will be to the malevolent spirit level and you get all the perks of axe wielding maniac and final girl level like i said not required but if you were feeling generous and wanted to help us out uh, we do have a patreon so you can find us there at books in the freezer or you can support us by leaving us a review on apple podcasts or just tweeting about us or posting about us on social media uh Anything like that is a big help to, you know, a small independent podcast like we are. So thank you to all of you that do that every time we release an episode. We appreciate it so much. I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at Lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N. Or on Instagram at That's What She Read. And that's That's with two A's. And at YouTube at That's What She Read. Just spelled the normal way. And I'm Devin. You can find me on Twitter at Insomni Reads, or you can find me streaming horror games on Twitch at the Indian Insomniac. Join us next time for Books in the Freezer. Mm-hmm.